Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. สวัสดีครับ. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be discussing the symbolism of the teachings, essentially reminders through imagery. And this chapter becomes really interesting and important because as you learn more and more of the teachings from the Buddha and you start to perhaps look at various artwork or sculptures or architecture and temples, you'll start to see how all of these artworks and sculptures and architecture of the temples have some connection back to the teachings in one way or another. So the more that you understand the teachings of Gautama Buddha, you will then understand the symbolism and be able to enjoy looking at artwork and architecture of various buildings to kind of remind you of the teachings. Because during Gautama Buddha's lifetime, he taught all of his teachings orally. Nothing was actually written down during his lifetime. And it wasn't until after he died that people actually wrote his teachings down in an actual text. But during his lifetime, people did use symbolism in order to remind people of the teachings. And as you'll see, as I show you today, that these symbols from his lifetime, some of them are actually still being used today. But the symbols that people used during his lifetime, if you just looked at the symbol, you wouldn't understand his teachings because it was just a symbol, it was just an image. But if you had partake in his discourses and you understood his teachings, and then you saw the symbols, then you would understand what those symbols were reminding you about or supposed to be reminding you about. So if you've been to any Buddhist temples or if you've seen Buddhist artwork, you may have looked at those things and said, oh, wow, that's really beautiful or that's interesting or so forth and so on. But you may not have understood exactly how what you were looking at connects back to the teachings. And now after our talk today and after you learn this chapter 23, which is the chapter we're in this week, you will be able to have learned these symbols and imagery and then you'll be able to enjoy this artwork in the architecture at temples on a much deeper level because here in thailand we have almost 45,000 temples throughout thailand and about 33 35,000 of those are actually in use and these temples have been built over many hundreds of years the thai people have invested their effort and resources and energy to construct these temples. And one of the things that the Thais do is on the weekends or on holidays or things like this, 
they will actually travel around and as a family visit various temples. It's a very common thing here in Thailand. Like we might go hiking or we might go to a national park. We might go different places in the West in order to spend kind of leisure time or recreation time. Thais will actually spend time leisurely visiting multiple temples in one day just to go in, see the architecture, see the artwork, see the land that it was built on. A lot of these temples are up high in mountains, so they'll have very beautiful views. And some temples are much more well known than others. And because these temples have been built with resources here in Thailand for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the temples don't actually belong to anyone. They belong to everyone. They belong to all the Thai people and all the people of the world can actually come here and absorb the teachings through visiting and seeing the symbolism and the imagery in the actual temples. So after today's talk, you'll be able to start visiting temples wherever they are, whatever land, whether it's in Thailand or any other country, and you'll start understanding more on a much deeper level of how people maybe 500 years ago or a thousand years ago or even longer constructed these temples and they placed these symbols and imagery in different places in order to remind people about the actual teachings. And now that you've actually learned a good amount of these teachings over the last five or six months in this group learning program and through this entire book, this is the point in time to actually start talking about the symbolism because it will start making a lot more sense to you because you already know the teachings themselves. So as we go today, feel free to ask questions. I've chosen the same symbolism that I described in this chapter 23, and now I'm going to show it to you here on the screen so that you'll be able to see what we're talking about. And I've included some extra pictures that aren't in the book as well, so we'll have some other things to actually talk about. Okay, this first one that is in the book that you'll see quite commonly it's often referred to as the Na, N-A, and the main image in the center of the screen is the one that is most common and most widely used. This particular symbol is used as a sign or a symbol of enlightenment or the path of one's life. It starts in the center at the bottom and it circles around clockwise. This circling clockwise is essentially showing how we're reborn in the cycle of rebirth, right? The people or beings are, are kind of trapped in this cycle of rebirth. And there you see that the line is very broad and very wide. Well, as you're kind of cycling around in this cycle of rebirth, eventually you start to learn the teachings of the Buddha and you start walking on this path and you can see the line kind of narrows. The path becomes more visible as you learn and practice the teachings of the Buddha. And you progress along this path and it takes this kind of sweeping motion where it actually goes forward, but then it kind of comes back a little bit. And then it goes forward some more and then it comes back a little bit and then it goes forward some more and back a little bit and it kind of gets more and more and more narrow as it moves towards the top this is a person's mind narrowing in on the teachings more and more and more but as you're walking on this path 
notice the backwards motion because oftentimes we think about our progress towards enlightenment as being linear and just continuously going forward. Oftentimes people will start a meditation practice, they'll get you know two, three, four weeks of a lot of benefit, and then all of a sudden they're not feeling the same results anymore and they feel like you know something's wrong, so to speak. But essentially, you know, the mind is just kind of taking some backward steps and this is kind of normal on the path. There's not going to just be this straight progression towards enlightenment. And that's what this particular symbol is representing, is showing, you know, this cycle of rebirth and someone not knowing the path. It's very broad, very dark. And then as we narrow in on the teachings, that path becomes narrower and narrower, but we still take steps backwards. And then as we really narrow in on the path, getting to those four jhanas and then the four stages of enlightenment, the path gets really, really narrow and then eventually ascends all the way to the top. So this is the first symbol that I would like to introduce to you guys and see if there's any questions on this. Reassuring to know, David, that the, the back steps are well documented and understood. Uh, we can probably all relate to those kinds of moments. Yes. periods in our practice yes for sure and this is the most common symbol that you will see and oftentimes you'll see this symbol placed at the third eye like on a statue right so if you see this at the third eye on a statue of like the buddha then what they're essentially signifying is okay this person's third eye is open because once the third eye opens there's this deep wisdom in the mind this inward focus this profound wisdom that comes from the mind you might even have you know two three four months of continuous thoughts of wisdom that comes into the mind you're not yet enlightened but as the third eye opens there's this deep, profound wisdom, almost this constant flow of thoughts throughout your day where you're able to look at things and think about things in a different way than you did previously. This is kind of like when you get into the jhanas and this is where the third eye is typically opening is during the, the stage of the jhanas where this you know rush of wisdom over multiple, multiple days and months, really. And you might even have the inclination and the feeling that you just want to write everything down because the mind isn't yet enlightened. So the mind still has this craving and it wants to hold on to things. And as all of this wisdom is coming to the mind, you're like, whoa, this is so deep. And you kind of want to hold on to it all. And you want to kind of write it all down or somehow write it out. And what you start to learn is as the third eye is opening and all this wisdom is coming into the mind, that it's just soaking into the mind and you don't really have to hold on to it in terms of writing it down, but it will absorb in the mind and it will be there for you. So you'll oftentimes see this symbol on a statue at the third eye, which is a symbol of enlightenment. You'll sometimes see it on like these fans that the monks will hold. You'll see it in various artworks and various things. This is the most popular one that you see, but you'll see other variations of that too. And that's what I've got on the screen on the sides are some kind of different variations that are less common, but are essentially based on the same concept as this main image that you'll see. And here, you know, talking about the backwards motion, Max, you can see these images are like, whoa, like all kinds of craziness at the beginning of 
the the line which starts at the bottom you know all kinds of like squirrely and squiggly which is kind of what life is like before you get on this path it's pretty hectic and pretty stressful and pretty crazy and like kind of going all over the place and then eventually you start learning these teachings and you start honing in on what it is that we can all learn and practice to make our condition of our mind better and the condition of our life better and this is where now the line goes into this more free-flowing kind of gradual line kind of walking this path and life becomes more manageable and eventually whoom you kind of ascend to enlightenment in this life so you'll see different variations of this as well and this is essentially just a symbol that's showing you the okay this is a symbol of enlightenment kind of reminding you that you have the potential to attain enlightenment and that our pursuit and our goal in this life should be enlightenment thanks david we have no questions at this time okay so let's go to the next symbol which is another super super common one which is we call the dhamma wheel okay dhamma means teachings this wheel will most often have eight spokes okay the wheel itself is a reminder of the cycle of rebirth right because that's the primary problem that the buddha is really resolving the primary problem in the mind is craving or desire or attachment but the primary problem is being solved overall is this constant cycle of rebirth so there's this reminder through the wheel itself the circular motion of the wheel that that's the cycle of rebirth and that's kind of what we're working to eliminate and escape and then you'll typically see eight spokes and you guys might be able to figure out what these eight spokes are related to it's related to the eightfold path and it's reminding us that it's the eightfold path that is the path to eliminate this cycle of rebirth eliminate the discontent mind and attain enlightenment and ultimately eliminate this cycle of rebirth here in the middle you see behind me you see the statue of a buddha two buddhas they actually have two different statues there and then right behind it is this wheel and oftentimes you will see this wheel placed behind the head of a statue and this is kind of a little known fact people don't realize this is that the other aspect of a dhamma wheel is that when a buddha awakens right a buddha is a self-awakened being who basically discovers and realizes these teachings on their own without any help of any teachers or guides they learn and realize these teachings through essentially observing the natural laws of existence in daily life and as they awaken their own mind through this self journey they eventually then declare those teachings which help people during the buddha's lifetime to awaken attain enlightenment and then after his death there's going to be countless more individuals that awaken through those teachings after a buddha arises and after a buddha awakens well when a buddha awakens in the world this is a major step forward for humanity to be able to have a living breathing buddha in existence in the world means that the pure teachings of these natural laws of existence the pure dhamma is going to be explained and expounded and shared from this individual buddha 
And that's a big step forward for humanity to be able to have that individual in existence. And anybody who's living during the lifetime of a Buddha has a really big chance of actually attaining enlightenment during a Buddha's lifetime because they understand the path so clearly. Well, when a Buddha awakens, because this is a major step forward for all of humanity, the Buddha actually turns the Dhamma wheel. They actually turn this wheel counterclockwise. And the wheel is actually on the top of the Buddha's head, figuratively speaking. And there's kind of like a flat spot where the crown of the skull and the back of the skull comes up. There's a flat spot on the Buddha's head and he will actually turn it with his hand counterclockwise. And when he does this, this is essentially the sign of humanity stepping forward. And now this Buddha has awakened and will start sharing the teachings with the world in a way that all of humanity can step forward because now there's a living, breathing Buddha who understands the path so well that they can now share it in such a profound way that people can make significant progress during the Buddha's lifetime. And those teachings that he's sharing during his lifetime and all those people that are becoming enlightened during his lifetime are then going to be shared after his death, which is going to help so many more other beings once he actually dies. So this Dhamma wheel is to remind us of the cycle of rebirth and the Eightfold Path it's located on the top of a Buddha's head, which is why it's oftentimes placed in various temples or artwork behind a Buddha's head. And he's the one who's actually going to turn it upon his awakening as a sign of stepping forward for all of humanity. We have a question, David, from Deborah Wright on Facebook. Mm -hmm. She says, I've seen these symbols as tattoos in the West. Is there a reason for this or is it purely cosmetic? Different people get tattoos for different reasons, I would imagine. They may or may not understand what this is. I'm not sure. You'd have to ask each person, you know, why they're actually doing it. it they may be doing it to remind themselves. If they do understand the, the teachings, they may be using it as a reminder for themselves to walk the Eightfold Path. But the symbolism is what I've mentioned, but how people may understand that or what level of depth they understand that each individual is different. So you'd have to ask them. One photo that I have on the side, not the cartoon looking one, but the other one, that's a temple marker. They actually mark out the land around the actual main building of the temple. So sometimes people use them for the temple markers as well. But why somebody might decide to use it as a tattoo each person's different and has their own reasons, I'm sure. Thanks, David. We have no questions at the moment. Okay. So back to this temple marker, the temple itself, you know, oftentimes is going to be a big, large land, or if it's a city temple, it might be a little bit smaller, but there's always going to be kind of like one main building with a lot of other buildings around it. And before they actually start the construction of this main building, they will kind of have an event to mark off the land and they will put markers, eight markers around the border and then they'll put one in the middle, right? So there's essentially nine markers and 
they will put them you know kind of one on either side at each corner so there's the four corners and then they put one in the middle of those four corners so you kind of mark out the eight locations around equally spaced around the building and then they'll put a nine one right in the middle of the temple itself and these are typically big large balls and if you're ever around when they're actually getting ready to break ground on a temple they'll have a big event where the household practitioners and lots of monks will come together and kind of consecrate the land so to speak and there's a big event where they'll drop these balls into the ground and they will kind of become the markers of the land for the actual main building that they build on the land. And then once they complete all the construction, they will put these nicer markers above the ground where you can actually see where this big, large ball was placed down into the ground. And at this particular time, when they're opening a new temple or breaking the ground of a new temple, they will have these big events where people from all over will come and provide support in terms of financial support to be able to pay for the construction of the actual temple itself. And these events are attended by thousands and thousands of people from all over that will actually come and participate in these. And whenever you go visit a temple, the way that the Thais set it up is the main building will have these markers and of course each temple is different right they're not all the same because of impermanence but sometimes you'll see the markers are using these wheels as a way of marking out the land and some temples will use other imagery as they mark out the land around with these eight markers so those are something to look for when you go visit a temple is these markers that mark out the actual building the main building. We call it the Sala in Thai, the main building, the main pavilion where most of the talks for the monks are going to happen in that building. And if they have statues, that's where the main Buddha image is going to be. And all the main events are going to be held in that, that main Sala or the main building. Okay. Now the next one is the lotus flower. You'll see the lotus flowers show up in a lot of different artwork. This is a very common one, not just an artwork, but you'll see like when you go to temples, they'll have lots of lotus flowers around, either blooming or growing, or they may even have lotus flowers for you to provide a donation and place next to the statues. Or if you see a Buddha statue, oftentimes they will have lotus flowers around it or under it as well. And there's a lot of symbolism here with the lotus flower. First, when you see a lotus flower that's closed, like the first picture, the pink lotus flower that's closed, this is essentially showing and reminding everyone that they have the potential to become enlightened. So when you see a closed lotus flower, that's to remind you that you have the potential to attain enlightenment. When you see an open lotus flower, like the one on the bottom, this is to remind you of enlightenment itself. So this is why you'll oftentimes see artwork with Buddha statues where it'll be one big open lotus flower and a Buddha image right in the middle of it, kind of sitting on this open lotus flower, kind of signifying that he's enlightened. Or you might even see a lot of small lotus flowers around him with a statue 
in the middle, right? This is to signify enlightenment. And the reason why they use the lotus flowers, because if you ever observe the lotus flowers in the wild and actually naturally grown, what they are is they down deep under the water in the murky pond or murky lake, these roots will be down into the mud and really deep down into the mud. This is signifying the deep attachment that we're all born into the world with, this craving, desire, attachment, just holding on and holding on into this murkiness of the, the bottom of the pond. But then as this flower grows, it grows and grows and grows up over the murky water and it eventually blooms. That's attaining enlightenment. And oftentimes the bloom actually happens well above the water. There can actually be a good half a meter sometimes over the water that the bloom actually occurs. And this is kind of reminding you and signifying how we need to ascend above this craving, desire, attachment, this murkiness where the roots want to grab on to the things through craving and then actually needs to grow above this craving and beyond this craving to ultimately bloom above the murky water. And then lotus flowers have this really big, strong stalk underneath of it, right? And this strong stalk is like your practice, your meditation practice, the strength of your practice that has led to this blooming or this enlightenment, right? The individual mind is blooming, right? So this is how lotus flowers are oftentimes used as a reminder of enlightenment. And you'll see lotus flowers throughout artwork and imagery to remind you of your potential. All human beings have the potential of attaining enlightenment. And if you're looking at them in the wild, this grabbing down into the murkiness of the water, this craving, desire, attachment, but then ultimately ascending above that and then blooming into the enlightened mind. Any questions there? We have no questions at the moment. Okay. These are all pretty straightforward when you hear them. And especially now that you guys have studied for a while. Here, this image is kind of a combination of two different symbols that we've already talked about or two different imagery that we've already talked about. You see the bottom, the circular motion, right? This is combining the symbol for enlightenment and the lotus flower together. Here you've got the circular motion of the cycle of rebirth and then the walking of the path, getting more and more narrow. And then ultimately the line goes up into the air and then boom, you've got a lotus flower there at the top. And this is once again signifying enlightenment, but it's combining these together. So as many different artists as there are in the world, you'll see different people take different approaches to how they represent the various teachings or the various goals like enlightenment or the cycle of rebirth. You will see kind of some variations as well. And this is one of those variations where it's still showing enlightenment and reminding you of the potential of enlightenment, but it's also showing you this cycle of rebirth as well. Even if I don't explicitly explain some of the artwork and imagery that you're going to see in the world with some of the things that I'm sharing with you, you can almost interpret and figure out what the artist is attempting to share. And this is one of those cases like I've never seen this image anywhere 
But because I know what this image of the Na or this image of enlightenment is, and I know what the lotus flower is, I already understand that this image is meant to represent enlightenment. And you can come to that conclusion on your own, having studied some of the other imagery that they use. Okay, so as you make your way around the world and you see various artwork, you'll be able to interpret some of these things. This one here is really interesting. This one is a big serpent or the serpent king, right? We call the serpent king. Thais call pinyana, or we might call in English naga, okay? You'll oftentimes see these nagas at the front of a temple, at the front of the main stairs, at a staircase. And you see the three pictures that I'm sharing here that they're right in front of a staircase before you make your way into the temple. And sometimes they're just very short stairs, you know, five, six, ten stairs like you see in the one picture. But other times there might be 300, 400 stairs to get to the top. Like this other picture with the large group that has my son in it. This is at a temple here in Chiang Mai that has, you know, maybe 300 steps on the way up the mountain. And there's these big nagas at the front, and there's almost always two of them on either side of the staircase. This comes from a story that we have heard passed down through the years from the Buddha's lifetime. And I'll explain this story to you, and then we can talk about the various components of the story. The story goes that during the lifetime of the Buddha, that there was this being who was born into the animal realm as the king of the serpents. And he had developed a lot of good, wholesome gamma, and he was so close to being reborn into the human realm that he had the ability to transform himself from a snake, essentially, to look like a human. He had this kind of mystical power because his gamma was so good that he and he was so close to being reborn into the human realm. So he was very interested in learning the teachings of the Buddha so he could actually transition himself from the appearance of a snake to look like an actual monk. And apparently he would do this. He would transition himself to appear like a human with a robe and look like a monk. And he would go into the talks and listen to the Buddha teach right alongside of the other monks. And as the Buddha would teach, oftentimes he was teaching to hundreds and hundreds of monks and people would actually fall asleep. And I know that in our culture, hearing that students fall asleep during teaching would actually be rude or disrespectful. But if you understand the Buddhist teachings is the more you learn the Buddhist teachings and your mind starts to become liberated, you're actually releasing the stress and you're releasing the burden of carrying this attachments in the mind. This liberation or this release of the mind makes the mind very sleepy. And people oftentimes, as they heard the Buddha speak, would actually become very sleepy and fall asleep. And this wasn't necessarily rude. It was just that the mind of the bhikkhus and the ordained and the lay people that he was teaching was just being more and more liberated and being released and people would just doze off 
as he was actually speaking, as their mind became more liberated through learning what he was actually teaching. Well, as the story goes, as the monks in this serpent king who had transitioned himself into being a monk fall asleep during one of the Buddha's talks, this serpent king loses his consciousness, right? Because he falls asleep and he transitions back into a serpent while everybody's sleeping. And then slowly the monks start waking up and they realize that there's this serpent in the talk with them and laying next to them. And once you actually have attained enlightenment, there is no fear. But these monks or these bhikkhus had not yet been enlightened. They were still on the path and still learning the teaching. So when they saw this serpent next to them, they were very fearful of this serpent. And they went and got the Buddha. And the Buddha comes to observe what's going on and all of this hysteria and this fear that's going on within his community of people around this being. And the Buddha comes and the Buddha's not scared. He doesn't have any fear because he's enlightened. And when he observes what's going on and he sees this serpent and he starts asking him questions and realizing that he's come into the Buddha's talk and he's trying to learn and he can transition himself into looking like a human and an ordained individual, he reminds the serpent that, you know, you're in the animal realm. You can't attain enlightenment in this life. You need to live out the rest of this life as a serpent. You need to extinguish as much unwholesome gamma as you have during this birth as a serpent. And it appears that based on where you are, you're going to be reborn into your next life as a human. And that's the life where you need to learn and practice the teachings to actually attain enlightenment. In this life as a serpent, you're unable to attain enlightenment. So it doesn't really make sense for you to come into my talks and listen to them and scare all the bhikkhus and other people who are trying to learn with me. So, you know, why don't you leave and just wait until your next life? And then that's the time when you can learn. And the serpent king agreed with the Buddha and understood what he was sharing with him. And what he said to the Buddha is he said, okay, well, if I can't attain enlightenment during this lifetime and I need to wait until my human life, then I'm going to go outside from where you're talking and I'm going to stand guard and I'm going to protect you in the teachings so that any evildoers who choose to come and cause evil and cause harm and degrade your teachings, I'm going to protect the teachings and not allow any evildoers to come in and cause harm to degrade your teachings, right? So this is the story that we've got. And this is why the serpent king is oftentimes placed at the very front of the temple at the stairs because he's kind of guarding the teachings of the Buddha and protecting them against any evildoers who would choose to walk in and try to cause harm to the teachings. Whether this story is actually true or not is a whole nother discussion. I would say the story probably is not true, right? Because there's no beings around today that can transition themselves from, you know, a serpent into a human. So there probably wasn't any beings during the Buddha's lifetime either. But this is how stories get embellished, right? 
But the interesting thing about this story is embedded in it, there's lots of different things that if you understand the teachings of the Buddha, it can recall to your mind and help you further understand this path to enlightenment. First of all, we understand only humans and heavenly beings can actually attain enlightenment. Animals can't attain enlightenment. Afflicted spirits or beings in the hell realm, the lower realms, you can't attain enlightenment. So that comes through in the story is that, aha, you're an animal. You can't attain enlightenment, right? You don't have the ability to cultivate your consciousness, understand them in the way that humans would and actually evolve your consciousness to attain enlightenment. So we understand that in this story. We also understand the extinguishing of gamma, that in each individual birth, we need to extinguish as much of our unwholesome gamma and produce as much wholesome gamma as possible, which will get us closer and closer to a good destination in our future rebirths or ultimately to enlightenment now that we're in the human realm. The other thing that we learn from this is we learn how an enlightened being doesn't have any fear and that it's important to extinguish all fear, right? So the bhikkhus and the ordained and people around the serpent king were very scared and very fearful because they weren't yet enlightened, right? But the Buddha wasn't fearful because he understands gamma. He hasn't done anything wrong to this snake. He hasn't done anything harmful. So therefore, no harm is going to come to him. So he just calmly, politely walks over and starts to inquire with the snake being without fear, right? And then, of course, we think about how special the Buddhist teachings are, that we shouldn't cause harm to the teachings, that we shouldn't try to degrade the teachings. We should always be looking for the clear path of what are the true teachings and don't share information that would degrade the teachings and just look for those pure teachings of the Buddha so that we can see the clarity of the path and practice this path very closely. So whenever you go to a temple and you see these big Nagas, it should remind you of these various lessons that thank goodness I'm human, right? I can attain enlightenment. I can learn and practice, you know, eliminating fear. It should teach us that we can actually do good for the teachings and uh, support them and encourage them without degrading the, the teachings. We can ensure that we're not going to cause anything evil to harm the actual teachings. And by understanding this story, when you walk by and you see these big Nagas, boom, you know, it can just remind you very quickly with just an image. And that's the whole idea of these various symbols and imagery like the Naga, like the Dhamma wheel, like some of these others. If you understand the Eightfold Path, for example, with the Dhamma wheel and you see a Dhamma wheel, it can remind you right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, and really soak that in that this is the path. And same thing when you see this particular artwork boom, it can, you know, right away remind you, thank goodness I'm human. Let me eliminate as much fear as possible. Let me not cause harm to the Dhamma or the teachings. Let me support and encourage this so that we don't degrade the actual teachings and they're available for as many humans as possible to learn and practice so that we can attain enlightenment. Okay. Any questions on this one?
We have a question from Pratik on YouTube. He asks, what happens when an enlightened being dies? Does something remain as awareness or pure energy which never takes birth? Gautama Buddha left what happens after one attains enlightenment and dies. He left this as an undeclared teaching. He never actually declared what would happen after death for someone who's attained enlightenment. So this is what we call an undeclared teaching. You'll hear some people tell you that if somebody attains enlightenment and dies, that then the consciousness dissolves and there's what we call non-existence or extinction. But this isn't a teaching of the Buddha, but it's kind of a common thing that you'll hear from people. You'll see in the book that I share, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana, if you look at the simile that I put here from the Buddha, it's called the simile of the smeared arrow. In there, he talks about his undeclared teachings. And one of his undeclared teachings is what happens after death for someone who's attained enlightenment. So we actually don't know. And I expect the reason why the Buddha left this as undeclared is because he had never experienced it before. He only ever taught things that he experienced and that he could actually prove or you could prove independently on your own. So if he did know what was next, he didn't teach it. And I have a reason why he probably didn't do that too. I have a feeling that he didn't experience it. So perhaps he didn't know what was next and that's why he didn't teach it. Or if he knew what was next, he perhaps didn't teach it because or if there is even something next, he didn't teach it because then it can create craving, right? There's enough craving in the world for all unenlightened beings to extinguish by itself, just to eliminate this craving, desire, attachment. There's already enough there that unenlightened beings really struggle just to eliminate that craving, right? And there's also craving. Some people crave enlightenment, right? They actually crave enlightenment. So you have to pursue enlightenment as a goal or an objective or an interest. You can't even crave. You can't even have this mental longing with a strong eagerness for enlightenment itself. Well, if the Buddha knew what was after death for an enlightened being and he described what that is, whatever it is or whatever it isn't, perhaps people would crave that as well. And they would really want to attain that. And that's just yet one more craving for people to extinguish. If you look at the 10 fetters, which are all the things that need to be extinguished in order to attain enlightenment, in the upper five fetters, which would need to be eliminated to attain enlightenment, not only the five lower fetters, but the upper five fetters, there's desire for form, and there's desire for formless. Desire for form is you need to eliminate the craving or desire or attachment to be reborn into any of the form realms, which is human or animal. Desire for formless is a desire to be reborn in any of the formless realms, like hell, afflicted spirits, or heavenly realm, right? You need to extinguish this craving and desire as well. So if he taught what was after life for an enlightened being, this is just yet one more desire 
for existence that somebody would need to extinguish. So if he did understand what was after this life, once you've attained enlightenment, I have a feeling he didn't teach it for that reason, that it's just yet one more thing to extinguish. So one more obstacle in which to stand in the way of somebody to attain enlightenment. So it's better to not even know what comes next. And then the third thing I'll say is that for someone who's attained enlightenment, they've eliminated all these 10 fetters, you know, which essentially involves craving, anger, and ignorance, realizing non-self, dissolving the ego, essentially so many practices and things you need to learn and practice. Having done that, an enlightened mind is going to be so peaceful, so calm, so serene, so content and so joyful, the mind is just going to be utterly at peace with nothing disturbing it whatsoever. You never experience sadness or anger, frustration, irritation, guilt, shame, loneliness, boredom, fears, shyness. You never experience any of these discontent feelings. So in order to get there, you need to extinguish all of these craving anger and ignorance, realizing non-self, eliminating the ego. You need to extinguish all these 10 fetters. You need to practice the Brahma Viharas and all the other teachings that you need to learn. For that being who has done that and put in all that work and attained this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, they've eliminated all that stuff. If there is something that's next, at that point, you really don't care. Because your mind is so peaceful, so calm, so serene, so content, so joyful. Okay, well, if there is something next, it's probably even better than what you're experiencing in the enlightened mental state. So why should I even be concerned about it? Why should I worry about it? Why should I even think about it? Why should I give any thought? The mind for an enlightened being is so rooted in the present moment and only thinking about this present moment when that enlightened being dies or what comes after it, that is so far in the future, the enlightened being doesn't even care because they're experiencing right now in the present moment such peace, calm, serenity, and contentness with joy. It doesn't even matter. They're just in the present moment making decisions moment by moment. So there could be this thing that the Buddha didn't know, and that's why it's an undeclared teaching. It could be that he didn't want to add one more obstacle for people to overcome. And, you know, thirdly, is it really doesn't even matter. Because if you attain enlightenment in this life, you will experience this wonderful mental state. And whatever comes next, okay, so what? It doesn't matter. There's no fear. So that's why he doesn't teach in my mind, that's, those are some of the reasons why he probably didn't teach what comes next, if anything comes next. We have a question from Manal about the Serpent King story. Mm -hmm. She says, I know it was just a story, but wouldn't listening to the Buddha's spoken words, spoken teachings, be one of the Serpent King's stepping stones towards enlightenment? A serpent being an animal doesn't have the ability to comprehend the full Dhamma and actually practice it, right? Because a serpent, in order to live, is going to have to kill other beings to eat. 
So they can't extinguish all the various aspects of the mind and practice the teachings in a way to actually attain enlightenment. And once they're reborn into a new being, i.e. if they were reborn into the human realm, then all of that information isn't going to transition into the next life. You can't acquire deep, deep, deep teachings in an animal birth and then transfer those teachings and understanding of those teachings into a human birth. The consciousness doesn't work that way. The cycle of rebirth doesn't work that way. So the serpent king wouldn't have been able to retain the content in the life of the serpent. They wouldn't be able to improve their practice to the point of enlightenment, and they wouldn't be able to transition the wisdom from the animal birth into the human birth. We have a question from Shital. She asks, how would one who has been on the path to attain enlightenment figure that they have actually attained enlightenment? What are the signs? Yeah. What does enlightenment feel like? Yeah, we're going to cover that here in a couple of weeks, but you know, the easiest way to describe it is the mind's going to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. You're never going to experience any anger sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fears. You're not going to have this great excitement and elation and you know the mind's not going to be pulling in that direction. You're not going to have boredom and loneliness and shyness, these kind of feelings. The mind will have eliminated all of that through the training of the teachings and training of the Eightfold Path, which includes meditation and other teachings as well. An enlightened being's mind is going to be very much in the present moment. They're not going to be thinking about the past or the future. They're just going to be rooted in the present moment. They're going to be very kind, very polite, very respectful, very helpful. They're going to be very loving and kind and compassionate. Their mind is going to be very equal. It's going to have that equanimity, right? It will have eliminated any jealousy or resentment. They're just joyful and they enjoy seeing other people be joyful and they enjoy helping others essentially through the teachings. So not all enlightened beings are going to become teachers of these teachings, but for people who do attain enlightenment and teach, they're going to be sharing the teachings unselfishly. They're not going to be looking for money. They're not going to be looking for material possessions. They're not going to have an expectation of things to gain. They know it's their last life and their only interest is to share the teachings with whomever are interested to learn so that this in their last life will be able to share the wisdom that's needed to help as many beings as possible. People who are enlightened and who maybe aren't teaching as a specific teacher, you'll see them in the world and they will be very successful in their personal and professional relationships. Again, you won't ever see them be angry or frustrated or irritated or annoyed. They'll be very calm, very centered, very solid, very focused. They'll have a very concentrated mind, have really profound memory. When you're enlightened, the mind has a very profound memory. And even these people in the lay life or householder life who are enlightened even though they may not take up an official teaching role, they still understand what it takes to attain enlightenment and they will understand how to describe enlightenment. This is one of the ways that you'll 
be able to know if somebody's enlightened is ask them to describe what enlightenment is. Ask them to describe what it's like to experience enlightenment. And a person who's attained enlightenment will be able to explain that in a lot of detail with a lot of information because they're experiencing it. An unenlightened being wouldn't be able to explain what enlightenment is because they haven't experienced it. So someone who's in a household life who is experiencing enlightenment would be able to explain what enlightenment is and probably be looking for ways to just kind of gently encourage people to also pursue this mental state, this path where you completely eliminate all these discontent feelings because they know how profound and how impactful that is to their life that they would kind of, you know, generally encourage other people to pursue that as well, just kind of lightly without forcing or any expectations or things like this. That's another thing is an enlightened person isn't going to be forceful. They're not going to try to control people. They're not gonna be pushing. They're not gonna be aggressive and hostile with people. They're gonna speak very gently with very well-selected words as they talk. So these are some of the things that you could experience as part of being enlightened. But the number one thing is the mind just won't experience any discontent feelings whatsoever. Thank you, David. We have no more questions. Okay, let's see what's next. Ah, the Bodhi tree. Okay, so the Buddha lived in the general area of what we today call Nepal in northern India, that kind of region of the world. At that particular time, it wasn't Nepal in northern India because the border hadn't been drawn yet. It was essentially a kingdom. Well, in that region of the world today, there's four sites that are kind of considered to be like sacred sites or holy sites or sites that are to be revered. It's the location of Gautama Buddha's birth. It's the location that he attained enlightenment. It's the location where he gave his very first discourse, his very first talk, and the location where he dies. Okay, these are the four sites that the Buddha said, you know, if you want to visit some sites, that these would be the four sites that you can visit. So here, this is the tree where people kind of say the Buddha attained enlightenment. But remember, it's a six-year journey that the Buddha actually attains enlightenment, and he gradually attains enlightenment over this six-year period. But people kind of pick this one spot as you know the spot where he so-called attained enlightenment but you know there's different stories about this where maybe this was the place where he made the final effort to attain enlightenment there's also stories that he sat under this tree for seven weeks contemplating whether he should actually teach or not because he discovered these teachings on his own and nobody else in the world understood those teachings at that time and he contemplated over seven weeks whether the world would actually be willing to understand and be able to understand what he had discovered and be able to also attain enlightenment themselves through these teachings. And over seven weeks, he contemplates near this tree of whether he should actually teach people or not. And we ultimately know that he did. He did start teaching people. But this tree has a lot of significance. And in English, we call it a Bodhi tree. 
and there's other names for it and there's a scientific name as well which i include in the book but this particular tree and this type of tree has a lot of symbolism around it and it's usually around the leaf so that's why i've got pictures of the leaf here for you guys to see and this leaf is kind of another symbol of enlightenment and you can see this kind of wide broad leaf and then it kind of narrows as it comes to the top and then it kind of goes off with this little string at the tip of the leaf which almost kind of reminds you of the symbol of enlightenment that we've studied just previously to this at the very beginning of our talk so you'll see this leaf and representations of this leaf in artwork you'll see it you know scripted on walls of temples on the roofs of temples you'll see it show up in artwork you'll see people who will somehow acquire a branch of this tree and then they'll replant it like here in thailand there's certain temples that have this particular tree and the locals will tell you oh yeah this was taken from the actual tree that the Buddha actually became enlightened under and we kind of transplanted it here and it's been here for you know 200 years or 50 years or whatever it is so there's kind of a lot of significance around this tree and this leaf as a reminder of our ability to attain enlightenment and confirmation of the Buddha's enlightenment as well so you'll see this leaf show up in a lot of various artworks as a symbol of enlightenment as well. Okay. Any questions on this? No questions this time, David. And the other thing I was going to mention about the tree or a tree is in the Buddhist teachings, when he talks about doing meditation, he talks about going to the foot of a tree and actually meditating at the trunk of a tree, essentially, and calls it the foot of a tree. So he talks about that being a very good place to actually meditate, is going out into the forest, finding a tree and meditating at the foot of a tree. You know, so it, his teachings of what has been handed down through the Pali Canon connect to this particular aspect of him meditating near trees, that he did this quite frequently. And even in the artwork that you see in the image those of you guys that are on social media you can see just above me from the camera you see an image of the buddha sitting in meditation it might be a little bit too dark for you to see but just behind them is a tree with these leaves so oftentimes when you see artwork of the buddha sitting in meditation you will see a tree with these leaves behind him so if you ever see a tree behind him and him meditating it's essentially depicting this tree the bodhi tree and it can remind you of your potential to attain enlightenment it can also remind you of the buddha's guidance that it's a good place to meditate is at the foot of a tree okay and i think this might be the last one yep that's the last one so any questions on any of these particular imageries, uh, these symbolisms uh, as reminders or any that you guys have seen throughout your journey in artwork that you have questions about? I might just ask a clarification on the Buddha's enlightenment there, David. So you mentioned it was six years. If I'm not mistaken, that was the length of time from when he left the palace to the time he started the teaching. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. In the first two years, 
he was studying with different teachers because there was lots of different teachers who claimed in that area that they had attained enlightenment. And there were various groups of people studying with these various teachers. So he took up training with two different teachers at two different times, but he didn't notice that his mind was in any better condition than it was prior to studying with them. His mind was still discontent because they were essentially teaching, you know, aspects of disparaging the body. Some of them were teaching meditation. So he learned a little bit of meditation, but it wasn't meditation that was really improving the quality of the mind. And they weren't sharing the other teachings along with it that we now know lead to enlightenment, which is the whole eightfold path. They were just teaching to kind of meditate and do horrible things to the body. Those were kind of like the depth of the teachings. And it wasn't until he struck out on his own over the subsequent four-year period that he actually starts making real progress when he leaves those teachers. So some people get confused because they know that the Buddha had teachers at one time in his life. So oftentimes if I tell people, you know, the aspect of a Buddha being a Buddha is they don't have any teachers. Well, he had two teachers at one point in his life, but those teachings didn't lead to enlightenment. So that's why he had to leave them and go out on his own for those four years. And that's what led ultimately to his enlightenment is that he went off on his own into the forest and he discovered the teachings by himself. And that's one aspect of what makes a Buddha a Buddha is that they attain enlightenment purely through their own discovery of the teachings, their own realizations, their own path without guidance from other people. And then once they awaken, they know the teachings very, very clearly because they weren't influenced from two, three, four, five, ten different teachers. They essentially had a discontent mind. They observed the natural laws of existence. They tested various aspects of meditations. And if those meditations improved their mind and led to more stability, more calmness, elimination of these discontent feelings, then they know that those particular practices that they were doing were leading to their enlightenment because they could observe it for themselves. They weren't just practicing teachings from some teacher and just hoping that they worked and eventually at some point maybe stumbled across the actual meditations that worked because that's what other people will do is they'll kind of stumble along and maybe learn 10, 20, 30 different meditations and they don't really truly know which one actually led to their enlightenment because they were influenced by so many different teachers. What a person who ultimately becomes a Buddha is doing is they are practicing the teachings on their own and trying to kind of test on their own with their own mind, is this working? And as they're meditating and they're observing what's working and what's improving the quality of their mind, they know that is the meditation that's improving the quality of the mind without any influence from anyone else. So in this four year subsequent period, that's where he really goes inside and discovers for himself what are the meditations that are working. He starts discovering this eightfold path, all the various details of the eightfold path. He starts understanding gamma very clearly. He starts understanding the Brahma Viharas, those four mental states that need to be cultivated in the mind. He starts understanding all these various aspects of what it takes to attain enlightenment. 
And then as his mind awakens, that's how he knows he's awake because he no longer experiences discontent feelings. His mind is completely peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And having done that on his own, as a Buddha awakens, he knows he's a Buddha and he knows that it's up to him to help humanity to learn these teachings and share these teachings with others. And as he does so, as he declares these teachings and helps other people along this path, they become enlightened as well. They see the truth for themselves in the teachings and their mind becomes more concentrated, more focused, deeper memory, more calm. They eliminate these discontent feelings. They knew what it was like to be angry and frustrated and lonely and bored. But as they progress gradually with this person's teachings, they know that their mind's getting better and better and better. The condition of their mind's improving. So this person who awakens on his own, he shares these teachings with others. Their mind is improving. Then upon his death, more and more people continue to awaken through these teachings. And this is how we know that he was in fact a Buddha because of these particular criteria along with others. One of the other things about a Buddha's mind is a Buddha's mind, the memory is going to be very deep. Most people's memory in their mind is going to kind of overwrite itself. So for example, your childhood, you know very little and you have very few memories about your childhood. And your memories in childhood are, there's some that are a little bit crisp, but there's, for the most part, they're kind of very blurry. A Buddha, even though they awaken, for example, in the Buddhist case, he awakened at 35 years old, his mind would have memory of his entire life, that entire life in excruciating detail. And he would have also observed his prior lives and have memories pretty clearly of those lives as well. So a Buddha's mind doesn't overwrite itself because their awakening is really happening over their entire lifespan. So when the Buddha was like five and 10 and 15 and 20 years old, he wasn't yet a Buddha and he didn't know that he was destined to become a Buddha at that time in his life. But those things that he was learning in the earlier parts of his life, he had such deep memory and he was able to understand and remember these things so well that once he finally got onto the idea of I'm going to awaken my mind and I'm going to attain enlightenment here. And he pursued that his memory would have been so deep and so profound that there are certain lessons and certain things that he remembered from early in his childhood that would assist him in awakening the mind. So while that last four years of his life was kind of like his final push to enlightenment, so to speak, he would have been having realizations that were leading to his awakening that ultimately occurred at 35 years old that he didn't necessarily know at that time that were going to lead to his awakening. So for example, when he at 29 years old observed sickness, aging, death in a monk, this 
was something that dramatically and profoundly changed his understanding of the world. Up until that time, he was destined to become a king. He was a prince and he was destined to become a king. But this particular event where he made these four observations had a profound effect on his mind that deeply moved him to try to understand what the problem is with the human mind and why it experiences this discontentedness. So while he didn't attain enlightenment until the age of 35, this had a deep, profound impact to his life. And then prior to that, we go back to when he was with his wife and his child. Even before his child, he had this you know, big sensation, this craving for sex. And there are stories of him and his wife making love on the top of a building and being so enthralled with this lovemaking session that they were so deeply into each other that they actually tumble off the roof of the building, fall down on the ground, and are still making love with this deep craving, right? And this deep passion with love and making love, this sexual desire, the sexual craving. And then later, as he gets ready to leave the palace, he recognizes this deep pulling of the mind towards his wife and towards his son to the point where he doesn't even want to kiss them goodbye or say goodbye. He just leaves in the middle of the night because he recognizes this pulling of the mind, right? At that point in his life, when he was having this sexual encounter with his wife and rolling off the roof, and when he was with his child and wife and leaving the palace, he didn't know he was going to attain enlightenment on his own. He actually had planned to go out and study with other people. He didn't even know that there was such a thing as a Buddha or self-awakening. But he understood at even that stage of his life how this mind is pulling in that direction. So later, as he really goes on this inward journey in the forest by himself, he would have deep memories back to various events in his life that helped him to see why his mind was so discontent and helped him to see that that pulling of the mind, that longing and strong eagerness is what's causing the mind to be discontent. So a Buddha's memory and clarity of their memory in this life and previous lives is going to be very deep and very profound and which is ultimately the motivation and the catalyst that motivates a Buddha to actually seek enlightenment because their mind has such deep memories of all of these things that have happened in their life and all of these various events, good and bad, their mind is almost bombarded with thoughts and ideas and perceptions, thoughts of the past, thoughts of the future. Before he was a Buddha, before he was actually enlightened, his mind would have been bombarded with all of this these thoughts and ideas and memories of things that happened in his life. And his mind would be utterly discontent because his mind was able to hold on to all of these thoughts and ideas and memories from his life. So at the age of 25 and 28 and 29, his mind would just be bombarded with all of these memories of his earlier days in that life. 
So that becomes the motivation of a Buddha. That becomes the catalyst to try to solve this problem because their mind is bombarded even more so than just another average and unenlightened being. And then as they awaken and as their journey to awakening occurs, that same thing that was kind of the burden or the obstacle, that deep, profound memory that bombards their mind with all these thoughts, ideas, and perceptions, that catalyst or that quality of a mind is what catapults them into pursuing this self journey. It also becomes an asset once they actually start on this journey and they actually start to then work on awakening the mind it then becomes an asset that they do have all of these memories and all of these life lessons to draw on that lead to their awakening. And then once they actually awaken, a Buddha has such a profound memory that they can then draw on all of this wisdom, all of these experiences from their past to actually teach and then help others to awaken. And then because they have this profound, deep memory, they can also remember the teachings because they went on this self journey and the teachings are so soaked into the mind of a Buddha at the time of their teaching, when they actually start teaching others, they can draw on these past experiences and all this deep, profound wisdom of what the path is. This is what makes a Buddhist teaching so profound, so clear and so potent because they have all of this memory to draw on all these experiences, all this wisdom. Their mind wasn't tainted by all these other teachers telling them what to do. They, they know for sure themselves what to do. And now as they help students and they help people to awaken the mind, they use this mind that has this deep, profound memory that was the catalyst to attain enlightenment, they now use it as a benefit and as an asset to help the people that they're now helping to lead to enlightenment through these teachings that they discovered on their own. So these are some of the qualities of a mind of a Buddha. Thanks for that, David. We have a comment from Shital. I have even read that when the Buddha got enlightened, he could see all his past lives flash, flashing in front of his eyes. Yes, that's true. That's what happens for a Buddha. They're going to have such a profound memory. I've talked about how even an average being that is unenlightened and progresses to enlightenment can oftentimes have residual memories of their past lives. But a Buddha is going to have very deep memory and see all their lives from their previous existences. And this is one of the things that is the catalyst for someone to become a Buddha. Like I said, when he was 29 or even when he was 30 or 31 studying with those other teachers, he didn't know he was destined to become a Buddha, right? He just had a problem, essentially. He had a discontent mind and it was highly discontent because of his profound memory and being able to understand and remember all of these past experiences in his life. So he wasn't saying like, I want to be famous. I want to be this spiritual leader. I want to change the world through my teachings, right? That wasn't the goal that he set out to accomplish. His goal was, I want to solve this problem that I have with my own mind, right? I got to focus on my own practice. He wasn't trying to like change the world, 
right? He didn't decide to do that until the seven weeks under the Bodhi tree. After he was already enlightened, he realized that it was up to him that there was nobody else to do it. So his journey, he didn't even know he was destined to become a Buddha until he had actually already attained enlightenment and then contemplated under this tree for seven weeks. He was really just trying to solve his own problem with his own mind. That's what Buddhas do is they're kind of motivated through their own self journey, their own self pursuit, not even realizing that they're necessarily destined to become a Buddha, right? It's just that they realize upon awakening, I did this myself, right? I understand these teachings very deeply. There's nobody else around me that understands these teachings. They're teaching to destroy the body. They're teaching, you know, these people over here, they're still frustrated, they're still angry. I see them being lonely, but they're teaching and saying that they've attained enlightenment. But I know I did this by myself. I don't have loneliness. I don't have boredom. I don't have shyness. I don't have anger or irritation. He knew for himself that he had done this on his own. And he could see these other teachers were not yet enlightened because they still experienced ego, for example, or frustration or irritation or annoyance or boredom. They're still you know, disparaging the body and doing harmful things to the body. And he understood that it was all about the mind. It wasn't about the body. So once a person awakens on their own, their own self journey, they understand the teaching so well and they see all these other people around them that are teaching various things that those people say lead to enlightenment. But that Buddha, having done it by himself, fully experiencing enlightenment, he knows those things don't lead to enlightenment. So he knows that it's up to him. Otherwise, people are going to be misled through all of these other teachings. So it's his wisdom that needs to be shared. And that's why he then dedicated the last 45 years, the rest of his life, 45 years, to making sure people truly understood the teachings. And because an enlightened being has eliminated all the defilements from the mind, which includes the ego, he wasn't trying to be, you know, some famous guy that, you know, becomes famous. An enlightened being doesn't care about fame. All they're interested in is helping others to solve this very profound problem, this very challenging problem of the mind that they went through this really hard period in their life to discover these teachings and they solved the problem with their own mind. Now their only interest is to help as many people as possible. They don't care about money. They don't care about material possession. They don't care about fame. They don't care about notoriety. They don't care if any of that stuff, their only interest is, is let me share these teachings because I know I'm the only one that can do it. And it's my last life and I'm not coming back. So let me make sure that as many people understand this as possible before I, I leave and before I die. Because a, a Buddha not only has this profound memory, but they actually can see the future as well. They don't talk about it because they aren't interested in focusing people's mind in the future. But a Buddha understands the development of the world from the point that they awaken, they can see the future and how things are going to progress in the future. But they don't need to share that, but they understand it for themselves. And they know that they are in the position 
that they need to share this information because nobody else in the world has that level of wisdom and knowledge to be able to share those same teachings. We have a question from Pratik. How can we reduce the effects of unwholesome karma of previous births in this life, or even unwholesome karma of this life? The Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is the way to extinguish all unwholesome karma. It's first important that you understand what karma is, because most people misunderstand it. What karma is, is its cause and effect, or action and result. Okay, It's essentially the result of your decisions. A lot of people think gamma is this mystical, magical thing in the sky. It's not that. It's essentially right here, right now. Okay. If I talk polite and kind, respectful, warm, gentle, people are interested in learning because, okay, this is a nice guy. He has no interest or expectations of anything. He's just being polite and kind, sharing the teachings. And he's very comfortable and pleased to share the teachings. So people are interested to learn. Whereas if I was hostile or aggressive or irritated or annoyed, people wouldn't be interested to learn, right? They would be like, oh, this guy's pretty irritated. It kind of hurts my mind just to listen to him, right? So that's gamma, the result of decision. So by training the mind to be calm and peaceful, you're going to have better results in the world. Other things, by choosing not to lie, by being a truth speaker, and only ever speaking the truth, more and more and more people around you are going to know every time you speak, you speak the truth and you will be a person to be relied on, trustworthy and dependable. And more and more and more people will know every time you open your mouth, you're always speaking the truth. That's your gamma, that people look up to you, people respect you. When you talk, you speak very purposefully. Therefore, people listen to you. That's your gamma. That's the result of your decisions to only speak the truth. Now, conversely, if you spoke lies or you hid the truth or you were deceitful or you gossiped or you slandered people, this is unwholesome decisions, which are going to lead to unwholesome results. The more you gossip, slander, lie, talk with deceit, more and more people around you are going to know that's the way you talk and they're not going to trust you. You're going to have trouble in your personal relationships. You're going to have trouble in your professional relationships. So by making good, wholesome choice to speak with truth, then your gamma, the results of your decisions, are that more and more people are going to respect you, be polite with you, and trust you. And you're going to have better personal and professional relationships. So what the Eightfold Path is doing is it's awakening the mind to the natural law of gamma. And by learning and practicing that, you will make better and better choices through this wisdom of the Eightfold Path to now practice these teachings and you will be doing things like right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood all the way through that is going to train the mind to only make wiser and wiser and wiser choices. And through those choices, you will extinguish all this unwholesome things that are going on around you. So for example, if now you speak very hostile or aggressive or even a little bit irritated or, or uh, annoyed to people around you, then because you do that to other people, other people are going to do that to you. That's your gamma coming back to you because you've conditioned their mind 
that you're kind of an annoyed, irritated guy. And because you speak that way, other people are going to speak that way with you. But when you clean that up through the Eightfold Path, what you'll notice is when you speak polite and kind and gentle and friendly and respectful, using all the factors of the five factors of well-spoken speech that I teach as part of the Eightfold Path, when you do this around other people, more and more and more people will speak this way with you. They will start learning that you know, you're a type of person who speaks this way and therefore you won't get annoyance and irritation and aggression and hostility coming back to you. And this is how you clean up your gamma. Not this mystical, magical thing in the sky, but right here, right now, by learning and practicing this Eightfold Path, you will learn through the Buddha's wisdom and you will practice those teachings and more and more and more, the condition of the mind will improve and your life will improve as well because more and more people around you will start functioning in similar ways. And if you have this wisdom, if people aren't functioning that way, you will choose not to be around it and your life will become more and more peaceful. Okay, we have a question from Shital. Can you please tell us, where did you draw the story of Buddha being so involved in sex with his wife that he fell off the roof? Because as per my understanding, Buddha was always least interested in material things women, etc. Once he became a Buddha, yes, that's true, right? Once he became a Buddha, he no longer had sex. He no longer had material possessions. He was no longer interested in all that because he was enlightened. But before that, when he was unenlightened, he was just like you, me, and everybody else, other than he had this profound memory and this discontent mind. So he had all the same craving, anger, and ignorance. He had the self, he had an ego, just like everybody else when he was born into the world, he was born in as a human being, as a prince. So people in your life might have glorified him as if his entire life was perfect, but that's not true. During his lifetime, when he was a prince, he experienced all the same defilements of the mind as everybody else. So where did I draw this from? just like all the stories, right? All the stories have been handed down throughout the years. Which ones are true, which ones are false? We don't really know 100% or what percentage of a various story is actually true or false. We don't know 100%. But this story about him being engaged in sex with his wife is absolutely a story that's shared pretty widely because he was an average human being. He was a prince. He was a person involved with a woman and he had a child. Once he was a Buddha, he no longer had sex from that point because once someone's fully enlightened, they're not gonna have sex anymore. But prior to that, he had sex, he had sex, he understood what that was like. And you know, there's even stories of him when he was a younger boy that his father was trying to kind of make him so amused and so attached to the royal life that he had many beautiful women bathing him when he was even just a child, you know, five years old, 10 years old, 15 years old, you know, that he had four, five, six, 10 different women actually bathing him while he was growing up as this prince, right? Because if you're the king and you're during that time frame, you have to be strong, you have to be mighty, you have to build your kingdom, you have to have soldiers that look up to you, you need to expand your kingdom, 
you know, this king is going to try to bring his son up to be a very powerful man, right? So I imagine his dad was probably grooming him to be this very powerful man. And oftentimes we associate lots of beautiful women around a very powerful man. So there's lots of different stories like this. But once he became enlightened, you're 100% right. You know, he didn't have sex. He wasn't interested in material possessions. That an enlightened being isn't interested in any of that stuff. Yeah, Shital also made the comment that it was predicted at the time of his birth that he would leave his family and become a monk. Uh, she also says, so his father made every effort to keep him attached, much like what you were just saying, David, because his father obviously wanted him to take on the seat as the king after he's dead. She goes on, but Buddha was still reluctant and least interested, so he planned the visit to go out of the palace and see the outside world on his own, and that's where he encountered a sick man, a dead body, an old man, and a monk. Yeah, so this is the impermanent nature of the various stories over the years, right? Like, so your story, that's the first time I've ever heard anybody say that he was disinterested in sex during his life as a prince. That's the very first time I've ever heard that. I've most often heard the stories that I'm sharing with you. So this is the impermanent nature of these stories. In reality, whether the Buddha was enthralled with sex or not doesn't have any change or doesn't make any difference to whether you attain enlightenment in this life at all, right? It's just a matter of how much does somebody really want to glorify Gautama Buddha, this person, the Buddha. So we don't necessarily have to glorify this individual in order to learn from his teachings and attain enlightenment. We know his teachings lead to enlightenment and what his life transpired and what happened it really is irrelevant to a large extent. We can learn from it. We can use those experiences to learn, but whether he was sleeping around with 500 different women or if he only ever had sex with one woman, his wife, it really doesn't matter. What matters is that you learn the teachings and you train your mind to attain enlightenment. You're gonna hear various stories about his life and various things that he's doing throughout his life but what's important is that you learn his teachings, practice those so that you can get to enlightenment. I suppose one thing we can say is that the Buddha would, would have experienced the full range of feelings from the most unpleasant and the most pleasant. And of course, those that are neither unpleasant or pleasant. And I, th I sometimes interpret the story as he had such a luxurious lifestyle. He left for a reason and presumably he was already discontent and he must have been because he had just nothing but everything he wanted right and he must have been really confused at times thinking why am i still not content i've got everything what's happening there must have been something there this is sort of just speculation now but also then when he took up the ascetic lifestyle and the self-torture it sounds like he nearly died he was at the point where he was basically on death's door and that is often told as a kind of turning point in his story mm -hmm. Yeah, I can tell you, a person who ultimately becomes a Buddha, their mind is going to be highly discontent. That's the motivator. That's the, the self-pursuit. If his life in the palace was peaceful and joyful and calm and serene, there's no motivation to go out on this self-journey. His mind is highly discontent. And the more discontent it becomes, the mind typically will grasp, i.e. crave, 
more and more things, right? This is why I say that he for sure had this craving for sex because as the mind becomes more and more discontent, not knowing about the teachings that lead to enlightenment, as the mind becomes frustrated, we typically grasp more. We typically crave more. As the mind becomes angered, we typically hold on to our thoughts more. We argue more. We become more fearful. So for this individual whose mind is highly discontent, it's going to be grasping and grasping and grasping, wanting and wanting and wanting. And all of these things as a prince, he would have been able to acquire and he would have been able to get. But it never led to the ultimate peace of mind. It never led to the calmness, to the serenity, to the contentness, to the joy. And ultimately realizing the more he grasped, the more it didn't lead to this sustained permanent mental state. And that's ultimately the motivator that is the catapult that sends him out on this journey to find the ultimate peace of mind, which he starts out with teachers. And then that didn't work either. And then ultimately he says, you know what? I'm just going to go do this by myself. And then he strikes off on his own and figures it out on his own. Again, not to become famous, not to truly become a Buddha, so to speak, not that he would even know what a Buddha was at that particular time, but just because he had this horrible problem with his own mind and he was trying to solve that horrible problem that he had with his own mind. Thank you, David. We have no more questions at this time. Okay, well, this is everything that I was going to cover today. It's a pretty short chapter, you know, kind of six or eight different symbols and imagery just to help you guys as you pursue and you look at various artwork and fabrics and you might visit temples and so forth. It's a really fun thing to do. The more you learn the teachings, I almost call it like a scavenger hunt, right? Like when you go to some of these temples, all the temples are different. They don't try to set them all up exactly the same because they understand impermanence. So when they build these temples, every single temple is very different. And the Thais will go around here in Thailand almost like you know visiting a national park or something like this. And they will almost try to you know just uncover what are these people that built this temple 500 or 800 years ago or a thousand years ago? What were they trying to depict in this artwork or in this statue or in the construction of this temple? And it becomes like a scavenger hunt, kind of like very investigative. And you can really take your time and just kind of wander around some of these temple grounds. And I do this with my son I've done in the past. And just really take our time. And we've even taken family trips before where we've left for a couple of weeks and we just stop at various temples along the way and we get out and we just look and we just kind of investigate the temple and kind of take it in. And when we get to that local temple and we're looking around, there'll be some locals that'll say, oh, have you visited this temple or have you visited that temple? And they'll tell us about other temples that we didn't even know about. And we'll go visit those. And then those people will tell us about other temples. And it's like this little scavenger hunt. And you just kind of start to really get in touch with these teachings. The more you understand the teachings, you can look at this artwork and architecture and sculptures. And it's like the teachings become alive to you. And you realize how what you're learning right now, today, has been firmly rooted in this deep past 
of people passing down these teachings for 2,500 years as you view some of this architecture and artwork that has been around for so many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And as you see these teachings really make a profound difference in your life, there's no question that this person, Siddhartha Gautama, Gautama Buddha actually lived, right? So when you're learning a tradition that's based on belief and everything is belief, sometimes people question to whether to believe whether this person actually lived or not because everything's based on belief and you have no way of actually independently proving it for yourself. But when you start learning these teachings and they start making this profound change to the mind and you see that your life is gradually improving and you see this architecture and this artwork that goes back 500, 800, 1,000, 2,000 years or however long, you have no doubt in the mind that this person lived and he provided these teachings because you see the mind improving. And one of the first fetters and the first three fetters is removing doubt about the teachings. And as you get closer and closer to removing this fetter, one of the great things is to go visit some of these temples and just see how far and wide Gautama Buddha's teachings have really spread throughout the world. And this is one of the things that I do with students who come here in Chiang Mai as I take them around to the various temples and we walk through the temple and I kind of point out and show them all the various artifacts and artwork and architecture of how they've captured the teachings of the Buddha into the various symbolism and imagery that will really help to bring the teachings alive for you. So you guys are welcome to try that at some of your local temples or in a land like this in Thailand that has a lot of Buddhist artwork and architecture. You'll be able to really glean a lot from these various things and maybe even work to erode some of the doubt that you might have if there is any doubt that you might have about the teachings. So on Wednesday, we will be doing loving kindness meditation so you're welcome to join at nine o'clock on Wednesday. We'll be doing loving kindness. This is the meditation that's going to help you to eliminate that second poison of hatred, anger, or ill will. That'll really help to break that down. If you're having hatred or ill will or anger towards people in your life, you really need to implement this meditation as part of your regular practice and just keep doing it so that you can slowly eliminate that second poison. And then on Sunday next week at nine o'clock, we're going to be into the chapter of the book that's chapter 24. It's the last official chapter of the book, which is misunderstandings of Gautama Buddha's teachings. Because from 2,500 years ago until now, there's been a lot of things that impermanence has affected. Even here in Thailand, you get some temples that are practicing certain things that aren't what the Buddha actually taught. And this particular chapter goes through item by item, helping you to see the various things that people think that the Buddha actually taught nowadays, but he didn't actually teach. So on next Sunday, we'll actually go through each one, one by one, and I will share with you some of the misunderstandings that you're going to see in the world about Gautama Buddha's teachings. So until then, 
continue to study, continue to learn, and of course, continue to meditate and continue to treat each other with lots of love, kindness, and compassion. So until our next class, thank you for joining. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.